sunlight reflected off of swollen beads of sweat as they fell from the efficient's head and crashed against the ground like raindrops. It was my wedding day. It was oppressively hot, and I, along with my groomsmen, was sporting a tuxedo jacket that must have been made by the North Face. I was preparing to say words that would change forever my relationship with Chelsea. You know the vowels, they go like this. To love and to cherish Chelsea in sickness and in health, in prosperity and in adversity. I do. It's probably a little more broken up than that, I'm a baby. Do you promise to be to her in all things a true and faithful husband, to cling to her and only her as long as life shall last? I do. Do you take her to be your lawful wedded wife as long as you both shall live? I do. And then you put the rings on and they have you say that line. You have to say your full name. I, Justin Dean Braun, take thee, Chelsea Jean Westerhausen, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, to cling to you and only you, as long as we both shall live. Vows changed my relationship with Chelsea forever. We were at that moment after we did the kissing and the I pronounce you husband and wife and all that. We, we became in covenant with one another. Lives linked together. And our special relationship came with special responsibilities to one another. An expectation of faithfulness and loyalty. It causes my heart to turn within my chest and my stomach to lurch when I consider just the possibility of her breaking covenant with me or me breaking covenant with her. Faithlessness, betrayal, is... Terrible. And it's faithlessness that is before us in the book of Malachi this morning. We are in Malachi chapter 2, and we'll be considering verses 10 through 16 together. The people of Israel have been called into a relationship with God and with one another. They've got an expectation of faithfulness. Their special relationship with God and with one another comes with special responsibilities. And yet, as we'll find, they have acted treacherously. They've betrayed their God, they've betrayed one another, they've betrayed the covenant. I think the main idea of this section which I've listed for you on your insert, is that faithfulness to God requires faithfulness to one another or faithfulness to his people. And we are going to see three betrayals. We'll see a betrayal of the community, 
a betrayal of God through intermarriage, and ultimately a betrayal of marriage. And all of these betrayals culminate in the exhortation at the tail end of verse 16. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously or betray. And so that's the exhortation this morning, as I want to exhort you to guard yourself against faithlessness to one another and to God. Let's pray. Father, this section of Scripture is intense. Your word is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it pierces the soul. But God, we ask this morning that you would only cut us enough to heal us. That we would find these verses less discouraging and crippling and more encouraging and sustaining. Ask that they would be as steel rods, strengthening us in our resolve to be committed to you and to one another. Thank you that you have grace for sinners like us. We, like Israel, have been faithless. And faithless this week been faithless this morning probably. Some of us have even been faithless in our worship this morning. Forgive us. What we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. You do these things through your word now. Amen. A little bit of review since we took a break from Malachi to consider those famous Christmas stories together. Uh, Malachi is framed around six discourses or six disputations, theologians call them. I've been calling them conversations. Uh, That sounds nicer than an argument. But, But there is an argument going on. What's happening is God, through the prophet Malachi, will tell us a truth. He'll tell the people of Israel a truth. They will then argue with God or dispute, thus the term disputations. They'll they'll say, how have we done that? And then God will prove the truth of what he said. And then he moves on to the next conversation or disputation. We are in the third one. And so far we've seen that Israel has questioned God's love. If you remember in the first five verses, God says, I have loved you. And Israel says, really God, how have you loved us? Because we're back, we've, we've come back from exile, we've rebuilt the temple, and it doesn't seem like your promises are coming true. And God says, I chose you out of all peoples. Not because you were special, but because I've loved you. And he proves his love through the destruction of the descendants of Esau. The next disputation takes place in verse 6 of chapter 1 through verse 9 of chapter 2. And God, the of honor, where is your honor of me? You've despised me. And the people say in verse 6, how have we despised you? And God says, by offering worthless and empty sacrifices before me on my altar. People 
are faithless in their worship of God as they give him the least that they can get away with. They have all the ornamentation of religion, but it is empty of the power of God. We see in chapter 2 that the priests are at the forefront of this action. They've made it possible, and God pronounces a curse on them. Now we come to verse 10 in chapter 2, and having seen Israel's faithlessness to God in their love for him, Israel's faithlessness to God in terms of their worship to him in the temple, we now see their faithlessness to God in terms of their commitment to one another. Worship, worship involves how we treat others. And this starts in verse 10 where we see very broadly a problem in the community is that the people are mistreating one another. And then we'll get more specific and see that they're mistreating one another in terms of how they are intermarrying with other people and then how they are divorcing one another. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Quick sidebar here. Uh, This is not God creating all people, okay? This is not a a general statement. What's being said here is, don't all of us as Israel, as God's special people, share him as our father? Why then do we act treacherously against one another. This word treacherously, it can also be translated faithlessly or betrayal. It shows up five times in seven verses. It is the thread of sin that is pulled through all of these verses. It's the thread that ties them all together. Faithlessness is in view. Our treacherousness, our, is that a word, treacherousness? I don't know. This treachery that's been committed against God is in view. Why then do we act treacherously against one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers, breaking the covenant of our fathers, despising the covenant of our fathers. And so Malachi starts this disputation by saying, there are are some things that bind us together as the community of God's people. We have God, we share a common father. We share the commonality that he's called us together and created us as Israel. And we share a covenant. We are in covenant with him together. And this requires from us a faithfulness. We act treacherously against one another. We betray one another. We act faithlessly against one another. When God creates a people, calls them together, as his special people, that that comes with special responsibilities. And Israel has broken that covenant. They've failed in their responsibility. Likewise, uh, for us as a church, what God does when he makes you a Christian is he calls you out of the world and into the church to, to believe in Jesus is to become part of the body of Jesus. And becoming God's special people comes with special responsibilities. And some of that's outlined for us in 1 Corinthians 12, which we've uh, studied together recently. 
wherein we learn that we are all members of the same body of Christ. Verse 12 of that chapter says, For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body. We read in 1 John 4.20 that if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. And so right away, we see that this Christianity thing, though it is personal, it's never private, a, a belief in Jesus can't be separated from the inclusion in his body. Or a love for Jesus can't be distinguished from a love for his people. There is a responsibility towards love Jesus, but I hate Christians. I I love Jesus, but I don't belong to a church where I actually have to interact with other people who love Jesus. They're the worst. This doesn't make any sense. It's tantamount to a a husband saying to his wife, baby, you have the best personality. You're funny. We have the same taste in books. I just, I love being around you. You're great but I hate your body. It is disgusting. I mean, it's great to hang out, but could you, could you cover that thing up? It's grossing me out a little bit. Husbands, try that with your wife. See how it goes. You, you can't love Jesus and hate his body. It doesn't work like that. Our commitment to Christ comes with a commitment to his people. A love for the people of God is a corollary to a love for God. Step number one to guarding against faithlessness to God. Join yourself to a church, the people of God, a church that is committed to the word of God committed to following God in holiness. Commit yourself to a group of people that is committed to guarding you. It's part of what we're doing in the church. We bear one another's burdens. We we guard one another from sinfulness. When I'm caught up in a sin, a brother is going to come to me and say, hey man, don't do that. It's unholy. That will take you away from God and into faithlessness. You need to repent. And hopefully I'll be uh, humble enough and wise enough to say, thank you, brother. I do need to repent. Will you forgive me? We keep one another from sin as we encourage one another on towards good deeds and love. What's happened in Israel is their culture has become toxic. It's become toxic so that sin is no longer confronted or seen as sinful, but rather has become common part of the fabric of their everyday existence. I mean, to the extent that that Micah has to write this to them. Friend, part of the way we we, we try to hold one another accountable and and keep one another faithful is uh, by way of our, our membership covenant. When you join the church, you sign this. You've all seen it. 
And just some of the things that lays out basic Christianity, some of the things that we're going to do in one another's lives. I'm just going to read a portion of it to you, not all of it. This starts out, As one who has been led by the Spirit of God to repent, joyfully enter into this covenant with the other members of Rockfish Valley Baptist Church before God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we prayerfully covenant together to nurture authentic and abiding relationships with one another and with Christ. To pray for one another. To be nurtured and fed through corporate gatherings of the church. To steward our spiritual gifts and material resources. To follow the leadership of the elders at, at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. These are ways that we've committed ourselves to keeping one another faithful to God and to His Word. These are ways that we have come together to guard ourselves against the, the treachery that we are capable of. Friend, if you are cut off from a church, that is very, very bad for you. If you are not committed and woven into the fabric of a local assembly, I fear for your spiritual well-being. If we want to follow the body metaphor, it's, it, it, when you are not part of a body of Christ, you are torturing that body and yourself. And if you don't believe me, you can just pick up on that metaphor and bring it into reality a little bit and cut off a superfluous appendage. Right? You can, you can cut off your And what you'll find is two things. Is that really hurts, that those, that appendage really matters, and that it dies apart from your body and that your body would be better off if it had that appendage. You will be better off if you are part of a church. And if you are not part of a church, friend, you are losing vitality day by day. You are missing out on one of the best resources that God has for you. If you want to experience the power of God, you need to be around the people of God. Because that's how Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that his spirit is made manifest most regularly. Experiencing spiritual dryness? Well, take a look at your relationships with other Christians. It'd be a good place to start diagnosing that problem. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers broadly They've sinned against one another, and now it gets more narrow. Verse 11. Judah has acted treacherously, or faithlessly, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of Why is that problematic? Well, first, it's prohibited in the law. But secondarily, it's problematic because foreign women come with foreign gods. I want to be clear here. This prohibition of intermarriage has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with religion. Nothing to do with race. Everything to do with religion. 
Because you know what happens when somebody gets married, when you marry, in my case, I married Chelsea, what happened to me is that she brought her stuff with her, all right? So like the stuff that you have in your house, if you're a guy, uh, you know, maybe you have antlers on the wall and some fish that you've caught. Well, that stuff starts to disappear. And what happens is pictures of flowers with vases replace them. The sports magazines that you had in the bathroom as reading material, they go away and they are replaced with something called potpourri. Your plastic cups that you have spent decades collecting, well, those, those turn into glasses. Tumblers, she calls them. Your koozies become, I can't remember what I said for that one. They become something else. They go away. It's madness. Koozies become coasters. There it is. They bring their stuff. That's the point. When you marry somebody, they bring their stuff with them. In the same going to lead his people away from him. And so the first application I, I, I want to make, and it's a subordinate one, what foreign gods are hiding away in your house? What foreign gods have you, even as a Christian, even as a person of God, hidden away in your house or in your heart? It's important that you figure out what they are and destroy them. Now, the larger application here is that for a person of Israel, for a member of God's covenant people, to unite themselves to somebody who is outside of that covenant and committed to foreign gods is an act of betrayal against God. Again, this is not a racial prohibition. It is a religious one, right? Ruth and Abigail are proof of that. There are many others who, when they adopt the God of Israel, are welcomed into the people of Israel. This is a religious prohibition. But part of what happens when an Israelite chooses a wife is that they are also choosing their God. When they choose a foreign wife and foreign gods who worships foreign gods, they are choosing idolatry rather than the true God. And friend, the same is true for you today if you're a Christian. If you choose to unite yourself to marry someone who is not a Christian, who does Second Corinthians chapter six, starting in verse fourteen. Don't become partners with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial, Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 
you also notice that this, this part of 2 Corinthians is framed by Paul talking about the affections of the people. And when I look at this and think about it, I go, if we want to marry or have as our best friends people who don't believe in Jesus, if that's where our hearts are, well, it says something about our hearts. If we have a greater love for things that are unholy than we do for things that are holy, there's something wrong. I'm going to lead them to the Lord as I date them. Don't do that. There's only a few of you in here. Do not even consider marrying a non-Christian because if you do, they're going to do the same thing that the, the foreign people did in Micah. They're going to bring their foreign gods with you, with them. You will be tempted to forsake the God that you have followed for your whole life. Moreover, I, don't, I just don't understand why you wouldn't want to marry somebody who doesn't share or can't share with you the most important thing about you. That can't love the thing that you love most deeply, which is Christ. But this is, this is an exhortation that is commonly ignored in the contemporary church. Many a marriage has suffered and been broken apart because Christians married people that did not follow Jesus. Church, you have a responsibility here. The singles in your life, you need to shepherd them. Tell that young person in your life that is uh, marrying someone who isn't following Christ or, or dating someone that isn't following Christ, this is not a good idea for you. This person will lead you away from Jesus. They will not strengthen your faith in Jesus. are married to somebody that isn't a Christian, uh, while the single isn't called to missionary date, you are called to be a missionary in your marriage. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 7. We, we visited that not too long ago, but let me read it to you again. I, the Lord, verse 12, Say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound. In such cases, God has called you to live in peace. Wife. For all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. If you're married, Paul says, you have a special gospel presence and a special gospel influence on your family. No, your husband and your children are not saved by your faith, but they are in a special way set apart towards holiness. They get to hear and observe the gospel in your life each and every day. And so if, if that's you, if you are married to a non-Christian, and I know some among us are,
twofold application. Singles, don't missionary date. Marrieds to non-Christians, be a missionary in your marriage. We see that Israel has committed a betrayal of the community by acting treacherously or faithlessly towards one another. They have betrayed God by marrying people that worship foreign gods. And now we will see that they betray marriage by divorcing their wives. Look at verse 13. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner, your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of the Spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully, so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice or crime. Says the Super hard to translate. Some of the details are clear, but others not so clear. Uh, verse 16, you may have a translation. If you have the KJV, it says, God hates divorce. Right? That's not the one I read to you. Um, I, I think... Uh, while that's a legitimate option, I just don't think it fits with uh, the grammar of the section. It requires that you provide Yahweh as the subject of hatred, and I just don't see warrant for doing that. And I think the translation I read to you, as uh, many others translated in a similar fashion, fits better with what we see in the rest of Scripture. Uh, because even though um, God isn't in favor of divorce. There's not this hatred for all divorce. There's a particular kind of divorce in view in these passages, and uh, theologians refer to it as aversion divorce, or I just call it I don't like you divorce, a hate-filled divorce. Uh, but we certainly know elsewhere in Scripture uh, this same issue, Malachi's kind of a contemporary with Ezra, Nehemiah. Uh, we know that uh, actually in relationship to Israel marrying foreign wives, God commands the people through Ezra to divorce them. We also know in 1 Corinthians there, there are biblical criteria, if met, uh, that allow for divorce, right? Adultery in Matthew 19 and abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7. And so uh, those well, we might be exceptions, but I think the, the broad principle here is clear. Divorce isn't good. This, especially this aversion that says, I, I'm just not happy anymore. So I'm going to divorce my spouse and go look for happiness elsewhere. Let me be clear. That's sin. It is sin to seek a divorce because you are not happy. It is sin to seek a divorce because you've fallen out of love with your spouse. It's sin to seek a divorce because you've fallen in love with somebody else. It's sin to seek a divorce because you're just tired of family life. It's sin. 
it's treacherous. The Israelites are divorcing their wives and they're marrying wives that follow foreign gods. This is a betrayal, not only of God, not only of their wives, but of God. Their faithlessness towards God is being expressed in their faithlessness towards one another and towards even their spouse and their most intimate of relationships. This is a flippancy towards marriage that ought to be despised. It flies in the face of some of the things we learn about marriage in these passages. One of the things we learn is that marriage... Look at, look at this in verse 15. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? And then verse 14... The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. God is a witness to marriage and an actor in marriage. He is making the two one. If you remember in Matthew 19, Jesus, when speaking to the Pharisees on these issues, says, Haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God does a miracle in marriage. And and when we break apart that covenant, we are undoing a miracle of God. Second thing we observe about marriage in these verses is that it is a covenant. Covenant is in verse 14. I couldn't find it there for a second. I got worried. It says, she was your marriage partner, your wife by covenant. Covenant, I think, simply defined as a promise. It's a promise. It is a promise in, in the context of marriage of future love and faithfulness. It's why we say those vows. When we say vows, we do so like these old vows, because they work well in showing us what this covenant is supposed to be, right? There's a reason why uh, they've been around for hundreds of years. Sometimes people want to write their own vows, and then they usually, they usually start out something like, Penelope, from the moment I laid eyes on you, the world shook. Things stood still. Colors got bright. I love you. And everybody's like, what? We didn't come here to hear you gush. This isn't the honeymoon, partner. This is the wedding ceremony. Save that. We're here for some vows. Because vows are not a proclamation of passion. 
a proclamation of promise. They're saying, grow old, and I don't feel as enamored with you as I do right now. I'm going to love you. In a few months, when I discover that you squeeze the toothpaste from the front of the bottle instead of from the back of the tube, I'm going to love you, even though I want to kill you. It's a promise of future love to cling to her or him as long as life shall last. It's a a covenant that pictures for us a greater covenant that of our relationship with God. Marriage is as fireworks are to a celebration, or as a signature on a dotted line is to a promise, or as flowers are a symbol of love. It is a living parable of the gospel where two people that are different are united together. Devoted to one another. Enjoying pleasure together. Marriage is a picture of the God who is completely other than, who's different than us, coming to us and being united. We even get a deeper picture of the gospel in marriage as we screw up and sin against one another and have to come and say, I'm sorry and you're forgiven. Picture of our need to repent, confess our sin and ask God for forgiveness. To breach the covenant is to be unfaithful to God. He, he is a witness to marriage and an actor in marriage. I think the church in general has repenting to do in this regard. I mean, sadly, divorce, aversion divorce, it has become part and parcel to church culture. We need to do better. We need to hold the bride and groom accountable to those vows that they speak. Like when you go to a wedding, hopefully uh, it's mostly people from the church that you're involved in, But what you're doing is you're standing witness as they pledge their love to one another so that down the road when things aren't going so well, when things get hard and they're thinking, I need to divorce, I need to get out of this, you can grab them by the shoulders and say, no, you promised. God did a miracle. And whatever it takes, I'm here for you, but we're going to work this thing out. Your, Your marriage is not about you. It is about God and the gospel And if you allow this thing to dissolve on wrongful, you are defaming Christ. You are perverting a picture of grace. You're making our relationship with God look like a consumer relationship that says, when you don't meet my needs anymore, I'm out. When in fact it says, no matter what, I'm in. I'm here for you. but I've fallen out of love, Pastor. Don't I deserve to be happy? Friend, your spouse is not your source of joy. 
If you have tied up your happiness and laid that burden on the shoulders of your spouse, it will crush them and it will crush your marriage because people make crummy gods. As the Hulk would say, they make puny gods. They can't do it. They can't stand up under the pressure. Your spouse isn't supposed to be the one who makes you happy all the time. The source of your happiness, the fountain of your joy is Christ alone. And if you get that twisted, your marriage is going to be a nightmare. Now some of us, some of us here have been through the throes of divorce. Some of us wrongful divorce. Repentance for you if you've been through a wrongful divorce and both of you are still single. Repentance for you if you've been through divorce and uh, one of you is, is remarried. Well, then repentance in that situation for the one that's remarried is uh, to continue to be married to the new spouse. You don't solve uh, the sin, repent of the sin of divorce by getting another divorce. It doesn't work that way. If you're single and there's no chance at reconciliation, then your job is to tell the Lord, look, I, I acknowledge I, it was sinful of me. I was wrong. I thank you that you can forgive me. And it's to live faithfully in that singleness. There, there is grace for the divorced among us. Christ came and was divorced from the presence of God so that those of us who have been wrongfully divorced can be saved. His, his forgiveness is grand. You can't out-sin His grace. He gives more and more of it. But friends, you, you, we must not take His grace for granted or presume upon it. We must not walk headlong into sin. Because when we do, when we, we betray God by betraying Him in our relationships, it affects our relationship with God. Look at verse Altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Do you ask why? Because you're in sin. If your relationship with God has stagnated, maybe it's because your relationships are messed up. We want to guard one another from faithlessness by keeping one another accountable to our vows in our marriages. Part of the problem in Israel is even though these sins are being observed, they're not being confronted but accepted. Look at verse 12. We have given, been given a description of the problem and then here's the, here's the consequence in verse 12, what it's supposed to be. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. To be cut off in Israel, people debate whether it was to be killed or to be banished. Either way, it's not good. And either way, Israel isn't carrying out this punishment. They're not concerned with their purity as the people of God. Again, this is why it's just so vital to belong to a church. 
one that practices church discipline. Right? We've said this many times now, and we'll continue saying it, that the church is the authority affirm my Christianity and yours. It's the church's job to say, yes, Janet is a Christian. Yes, Mike is a Christian, and he's walking faithfully with God. And it's also the church's job when uh, one of us falls headlong into sin to call that sinner to repentance. And if they persist in unrepentant sin, it's our job to take away that affirmation and say, we can no longer say that Joe is a Christian because the fruit of his life denies it. And we want him to know by our proclamation that we think if he persists in this unrepentant sin, he is headed for hell. That's what church discipline is there for. It's not a mean thing practiced by the self-righteous. It is a loving thing practiced by obedient saints. And its goal is the repentance of the sinner and the restoration of that sinner to the fellowship of believer. It is a safeguard against faithlessness. We must not allow a culture of sin to eclipse a culture of holiness and grace and truth. We must work hard to establish these things. Because if we, if we lose grace and truth, we will lose the gospel. We want to be after a gospel culture. Now, I don't, don't want you to miss the point of this text. The point is not, you have been faithless, so try harder to be faithful so that you can be reconciled to God. The point of this passage is, you have been faithless, all of you, and you can't make yourself right with God. You need a Savior, a faithful Savior, who was cut off from God for you. Friends, Jesus Christ was cut off from the presence of God so that you could be grafted into the people of God. Jesus Christ was banished from the people of God so that you could be brought into the family of God. He was abandoned on the cross under the wrath of God in your place for your sins so that you could be adopted into the family, God, family of God in his place and receive his blessings. The call to guard faithfulness here, the, the call to pursue holiness isn't grounded in your desire to earn the blessing of God. No, we, we obey God and pursue faithfulness because we already have the blessing of God in Christ. We commit ourselves to a community of believers because our love for Jesus explodes into a love for one another. We commit ourselves to serving the only, only the true God because we know that he alone can save us. We commit ourselves to our marriages because we want to picture rightly the gospel of grace. If, you, if you've come here as someone who has everything together, just really a good person, living a good life, then you have come to the wrong place. Jesus Church here at Rockfish is a place of damaged and sinners who have received grace. If you are imperfect and you are damaged, then this is the place for you. There is grace for you. Christ's blood is capable of covering any sin. Praise be to God 
that he loves us not according to our faithlessness, but according to Jesus' faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the responsibility of bearing your name. Thank you for taking us out of darkness and bringing us into your marvelous light. For taking out of our chest hearts of stones and putting within us hearts of flesh that can feel the majesty of the Spirit. Hearts that are inclined towards loving you rather than self. God, we ask that you would help us by the Spirit's power to live lives that are faithful to you and faithful to one another. And God, we thank you that there is mercy and grace. We thank you for taking our curse so that we could have your blessing, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.